Hey, morning. 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 So good to see all of you here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I hope you got some coffee in the morning. And thank you guys for, um, for you know, just, just uh, you know, wearing your mask. We know that the CDC made some changes. We're expecting some changes to our county and through our conference. So we're appreciative of you just, you know, sticking with us as we process through all this. We're really, again, we're very appreciative. So, um, so thanks. Thanks for that. And it's good to see you. If this is your first time back in church, welcome. If you've, you know, made the cut over the last few weeks because you got up early on Sunday morning apparently. That's weird, huh? I keep saying we sold out. Maybe we should start charging. <laughs> Wait, well, I don't think it would, I, there wouldn't be quite the rush probably. Um, anyway, <clears throat> thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, also, listen, if, if you brought extra blood, it would be really cool if you went and gave some to Livestream because, because normally we have a lot of people sign up. We didn't have as many people sign up this week. I don't, I don't know, probably just busy, probably just too many signups for everything. I get that. But um, if, you, if you could, when you're done, they'll be there until I think one o'clock, right? One o'clock. And so um, it'll be over in the North Building. You can just walk in those doors and go and give blood. That would be super, super awesome. We'd really appreciate that. So thank you for all that. It's, uh, we're in week 11 of a 12 week series. 12 weeks is a long time. You guys have stuck with us. I really appreciate it. The reason why this series is so long is that we needed to take a look at the foundational understanding of what Christianity is. Because over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has been shaped and molded, been pushed and squeezed and changed to be something that sometimes it's not exactly what I think Jesus and his followers had in mind in that first century. And so we've spent 12 weeks, or 11 at this point, I guess, walking through what it means to be a Christian. What are those foundational and elemental pieces that are important for us to keep in mind as we look at Christianity because Christianity, um, you know, has, has morphed with culture at times. In America, there's some weird identity issues that Christianity is going through. And so we need to go back to Scripture and find out what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we've been doing over the last 11 weeks. And we'll finish up next week. But we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, you know, we've talked about the rituals of Christianity and what they mean and why we do them, those types of things. We've talked about certainly who Jesus is in the midst of Christianity. We've talked about rituals and those things that we do, prayer. We've talked about all those sort of things. But I wonder if there's something else that has been with us from the very beginning. Something else that has defined Christianity, of course, besides Jesus, that has been a constant companion to believers throughout the ages. And I think there has. But before I get to that, have you ever had an uh-oh moment in your faith? I'm not talking about an aha moment. Those are different, right? We love aha moments where all of a sudden the lights turn on and we take this huge jump in our faith and our faith maturity. And we're like, oh yeah, I get it, I get it. Not that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an uh-oh moment in your faith. And in the first service, I said an uh-oh moment in your face. <laughs> Which is why I'm so glad there's people in the room. Because when I do stuff like that, when I'm just speaking to cameras, I think it's really funny, but there's no one else in the room to share that with me. <laughs> Excuse me. Ernie, I'm going to sneeze. I'm going to not sneeze. I'm going to cough real quick. Can you turn me off? <coughs> <coughs> Thank you, Ernie. Everybody, give a shout out to Ernie. Give him a clap, right? 
Uh, the people that are behind the desks and behind all the buttons are amazing in this church. So thank you all so much. But have you ever had one of those uh-oh moments? One of those moments, like maybe it's a book you're reading and, and uh, you know, there's a, a question that comes up. Or maybe it's a podcast that you're listening to or something that introduced instability into your once stable faith. Maybe, maybe we've grown up a little bit and our ideas of faith have changed. Or maybe like we met people who didn't even have faith and they were still wonderful people and we're like, wow, you can be good without God. And all of a sudden your faith becomes a little bit more unstable than it was before. I mean, these uh-oh moments get our attention like nothing else. But sometimes they mess with our stable faith, right? Sometimes they create an instability that is uncomfortable. And let's face it, sometimes they bring us to doubt. And doubt has been with us from the very beginning. It has been this, this uncomfortable travel partner, right? And we like to travel with people who are comfortable, right? There's certain people you like to travel with in your life, and then there's other people you don't like to travel with nearly as much. One of the first trips I took when our band came together was um, we went over to Finland, and it's, the Finland's an amazing place. I just love that place. We went at Christmas, and it's where Christmas comes from. At least that's what they claim. So does every other Scandinavian country. But, you know, um, fin- the Finnish believe it came from there, and I'm, I'll, I'll go with it. Um, and, and we went, but one of our guys in our band had never been out of the country before, so he had to get a passport. And he became kind of the quintessential ugly American. Because we'd go somewhere and he'd be like, that's not how we do it in America. I'm like, bro, we're in Finland. Like, it's different. The sun doesn't even come up here anymore. You know, he's like, in America. And it's like, bro, you're from Florida. I love that that's a punchline and I didn't actually say anything. You all just went, ah, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair to Florida. Anyway, we, you know, sometimes traveling companions are uncomfortable, Right? But just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean the doubt shouldn't be there. The truth is, in the earliest stories of our faith, doubt has traveled along with belief. Right? There's an interesting text that kind of teases this out a little bit. It comes from Mark chapter 9. You know the story. There's a man who comes to Jesus and he says, listen, my son has been... um, my, my son has been possessed by a demon, and so I'm wondering. So this is where we jump in. Jesus says to him, how long has this been happening? Right? And the, son, and the father says, well, it was since he was a little boy. This man is stricken by a demon. This boy is stricken by a demon. And just so you know, the, um, the disciples weren't able to exercise the demon. So that's why he's coming to Jesus. And it says this. It says, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Now that if you can shows that there was a question of whether or not he could. Why? Because his disciples hadn't been able to. So he's questioning, right? He's got some doubt. If you can, right? This is a destructive demon. It's causing all sorts of problems. The man wants it out for a son whom he loves. And Jesus doesn't really like that last little phrase. He says, if, I, if you can. And Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. Jesus kind of rebukes the man. And he challenges the assumptions that the man has made about him. But these assumptions that it might not work, that he's not sure if Jesus can, are reasonable. Because the disciples couldn't exercise that demon. Right? And so the father, hearing this, instantly cries out, and he says something fascinating to me. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. 
I do believe, but I have doubt in the midst of my belief. These two traveling companions are happening together. In desperation, the father calls out about his unbelief, his doubt. But he acknowledges that he believes as well. They're uncomfortable companions on our journey. I guess the question we've got to ask ourselves is, is the eradication of doubt the point of faith? That's a good question. It's interesting. Right? Are we, are we supposed to believe so much that we never have doubt? And that sounds nice, but I'm not sure that works. And I mean, I think we th- hope that it does. That as we mature in faith and as we get older, then we don't have any doubts anymore. I, I remember when my daughter was six years old, and forgive me if you've heard this story before, but it's, it's such a fascinating story to me. We're driving back from a little birthday party we had. And, and her best friend's in the car. And as we're driving, her best friend says, Hannah, we'll be best friends forever. And Hannah goes, until we die. <laughs> I'm listening now. And then her best friend says, and we'll be best friends in heaven. And my daughter says, we'll see. And I'm smart enough to know that this is not the appropriate time to address this question, but we're going to get back to it. So we drop off her friend, go home. And I said, hey, Hannah, I was listening to the conversation you had with your friend. And she said, yeah. And I said, she, that was really nice. She said that you guys would be best friends forever. And she said, yeah, until we die. And I said, yeah. And then she said, we'll be best friends in heaven. And what did you say? And she said, I said, we'll see. And I said, are you wondering if you are going to be best friends with her in heaven or are you wondering about heaven? And she goes, yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh. Now, we'll get back to this story later, but at six years old, that's an appropriate question. Is it an appropriate question at 50 years old? Is it an appropriate question at 70 years old? Is eradication of doubt the point of faith? If you believe it is, then what is the purpose of doubt? I mean, does doubt do anything? Is it, is it, is the purpose of doubt for this uh-oh moment that helps us redefine our faith, that makes us question things, even if it sometimes brings us into a crisis? You know, often the worst part of doubt is the loneliness. And why is doubt a lonely place in church? It's because We've taken the fact of doubt out of the equation of belief. And we actually sometimes shame people who express doubt. Let me tell you another story. I was, I was preaching in a ministry that I ran before, and we were doing a series on belief. And so I, I said, let's, uh, you know, let's address doubt. And so I preached a sermon on doubt. It's not the same sermon. I've rewritten this sermon a few times. But I give this sermon on doubt, and this person comes up to me afterwards and says, I'm really troubled by the fact that you would preach on this. I said, oh, say more. I mean, I went, say more. (laughs) Not say more. Say more. Um, I said, say more. And they said, you know, it's just, it's inappropriate. You're a faith leader. You're not supposed to have doubt. Because I admitted I had doubt sometimes. I was like, oh, Sorry, I don't know, it's too late now. And this person said, if you can't believe, how am I supposed to believe? And I said, oh, I never said I didn't believe. 
I said I had doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm not sure they got it. You know, they walked away kind of unhappy. But if belief is our economy, then those who doubt are seen as poor, right? In this conversation I had with my daughter, she's six years old, she says she doubts what heaven is gonna be like or whether it's there at all. <laughs> and I had a moment of, I could decide, is my economy in my family's faith, is it an economy of, of belief that says you should not doubt? And so should I, as a pastor and a father, chastise my daughter for not believing what scripture says? Or should I engage her questions and her doubt? And so I chose to engage her questions because the economy of my family is not just simple belief, it's authenticity and honesty and trust. And so I said, well, what do you think heaven's like? And she said, I don't know, but it sounds kind of weird. And the pictures I've seen, I'm not all that interested. I'm like, why not? She's like, number one, I don't play the harp, <laughs> which is true. She said, I'm okay with the wings, but I don't know if I want to wear a white robe. It seems like it's going to get dirty. Although, if you're just sitting on a cloud, what's going to make it dirty? I'm like, this is a fascinating conversation with this six-year-old. We process through it. And so she said, what do you think it's going to be like? And I was like, well, there's some things the scripture says. And then let's go to Revelation. Let's look at that because there's some craziness in there. And we talked about some of the beasts. And she was like, yeah, they're not helping. <laughs> we decided we were going to engage. Because the reality is sometimes we have doubts. We need to talk about this. And it's okay. It's okay to talk about this. Because even Jesus had questions at times. And we can even go so far to say that even Jesus doubted. And I know people don't like it when I say that, and I get it. But you see, if you believe the doubt is not simply unbelief, but you believe the doubt is actually an affirmation of faith, you can engage this conversation a little bit differently. And I know that sounds strange, but doubt means that you believe in something because what you don't believe in, you don't doubt. But what you believe in, you take seriously enough and sometimes you have doubts. Sometimes you have questions. Right? It's, it's worth referencing. It's worth questioning. But it also means that your faith is important. But I said Jesus doubted. So when did Jesus doubt? At least two times. That I think are, are the clearest examples. One was in the garden. And one was on the cross. So let's jump to the garden real quick. Luke twenty two forty two. 42. It says, Father... If you are willing, and you know this text, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Right? He's like, hey, I don't know if I like this process. I don't know if I like what's about to happen. Is this the best way? Is this the only way? He had a legitimate question. Listen, there are times I don't like the process and things. I have three wisdom teeth because I refuse to get my wisdom teeth taken out because they only hurt really bad every few months. Right? Well, there was one time where one of my wisdom teeth said, enough. And I had to go see a dentist. So I went to the dentist and I'm sitting there. And I said, so what's going to happen? And he said, well, basically, I'm going to rip your tooth that's well impacted out of your mouth. I said, oh, is that going to hurt? And he said, yeah, man. <laughs> Which is not comforting. 
And he said, but I'm actually pretty good at this. I'll use some, you know, Novocaine. We'll get up there. We won't, it won't be that bad. And I said, is there any other way? I did not question his goodness as a dentist. I questioned his process. Is there a way to dig my tooth out that's not going to hurt? And he said, no. And so I submitted to his will. The fact that Jesus had a real doubt and was still willing to submit to God's will is a stronger statement of faith than if he just went, mm, okay. He was thinking about it. He was processing through it. He knew it was going to be a difficult situation. He was willing to accept that because he knew God was good. Second time, I think Jesus had some questions. Turning to Matthew 27, it says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. You know this story. This is on the cross, critical moment. At three o'clock, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me is the term we normally hear. Right now, there's been a lot of work done on this text. We know he was, he was either shouting it or it's very possible he was singing it. It comes from Psalm 22. He's quoting scripture. Right? And, and scholarship over the last 2,000 years has done some interesting things with this text. They've said things like, it was a cry of victory. It doesn't feel like a cry of victory. But they've said that. It's a cry of victory. Some said he's just quoting scripture. That's it. But you know, when you know scripture so well, sometimes scripture becomes the language of your heart that you actually speak out loud. So, he, yeah, he's quoting scripture for sure. But I think it's because he's speaking of the heartache that he is feeling right now. Some say, some say that it um, was just for us, that he wasn't really feeling it because Jesus, of course, knew he was going to be raised in three days, so it's no big deal. Listen, I want to push back on that hard. I think Jesus is on the cross and he feels the separation that we often feel from God. Hadn't felt that before. And all of a sudden he goes, hey, where did you go? He's questioning whether or not God's still there. Where did you go? You left me. I think this was a true cry of dereliction. Like he seriously did not know where God went, as well as the fact that Sister White says that he could not see beyond the portals of the grave. In other words, Jesus is on the cross, feeling separated from God, honestly questioning where in the world did you go? And still he made the decision to go to the grave for us. Not sure he was coming back at that moment. That doubt makes that submission to God's will more powerful, not less. It gives us a model to understand that even in the worst of times, Jesus was willing to submit even when he was questioning, that's how we should live our lives. Now, your doubt may not be as dramatic as this. That was pretty big. Yours may not feel so critical. And it might, even not, it might not even create an uh-oh moment in your faith process. But I still think we should acknowledge our doubts. Why should we even acknowledge them, though? I think it's important for us to recognize the doubts that we feel for a few reasons. And number one, I think it connects us with what's real. It connects us with the real reality. You've heard me say this before. If you're going to give your testimony, if you're going to give your witness to somebody, I do not want you to give a witness to something that you have not experienced. Don't talk about a perfect Christianity that you've never lived. Talk about the reality of your 
Life and struggle with God. Because a true witness is a witness that says, sometimes it's phenomenal and sometimes I wonder. A true witness is a witness that says, sometimes I, I know the love of God is with me and sometimes I feel like I'm all alone. That's a true witness and that's more convicting, if you ask me, than someone who says, oh, the Christian life is this. Everything got better in my life and everything is perfect. I think when we recognize doubt, it connects us with the reality in which we live, which is important. I think that we recognize doubt because that recognizes that correct thinking and true faith are not the same side of the, two of the same coin. What I mean by that is this, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, right? Oftentimes we feel like our faith is predicated on right thinking, right? So our theology has become an economy of correctness. In fact, if I ask many of you why you're Seventh-day Adventist, many of you will answer like this. You will say, because it's the closest thing to Scripture that I've found. And that may well be true. Right? I'm not denying that, that, that good thinking is important. Don't get me wrong. But is that the economy of our faith? You're here just because you think I'm going to say the right thing? Or you think that we believe just the right thing? Because i got to tell you, God's bigger than the way you think about him. God is much bigger than that. And even, even if you have the opportunity to say everything right about God, he's still more, he's still greater, he's still bigger. These answer, answers sort of pale in comparison to what I think we should be saying. What if we chose our faith because our faith was the greatest expression of love? Why are you Seventh-day Adventists? Because those people love more than anyone does. That's how well they know God. They know how to love people in the worst situations and in the best situations. There is so much overwhelming love coming from those people, and it must be because of the way they think about God. I don't know. Rather than, well, they're the most right, which one is more compelling? I also think that doubt makes us challenge, makes us accept the challenge of an unsettled faith. So I was on this panel one time, and I've told this story before, but I was on this panel one time, I was late, and the way they set up this panel was from the very most conservative person to the very most liberal person, and there was one chair next to that dude, and I was late. Right, so I walk in the room, and I don't know anything about this. They had asked me to be on this panel. I didn't really know what it was about. I was after church. The church had run late. I come running over there. I sit down, and I begin to see this conversation. I begin to realize, like, they have put us, like... We're apparently like, I'm apparently the most liberal person in the room because I was the last chair. And the people on that side were not happy with that and we were supposed to be not happy with them. And I didn't really know what was going on. Um, so, so I just was sitting there listening and, and one person who would kind of been considered on this conservative side kept saying something that I thought was weird. He kept saying, you know, my settled faith, my settled faith, my settled faith. And I finally raised my hand and I said, hey, I'm sorry, I was late. I really apologize for this. But hey man, are you Seventh-day Adventist? because he, he definitely was. And he's like, what? What do you mean? And I said, oh, you just keep saying something that I'm really, I'm, I'm not familiar with. Settled faith. That's not really an Adventist thing. And he's like, what are you talking about? Because he was talking about doctrine. We know we are correct. We know. And I was like, I don't really understand what you're talking about. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. So you know. Um, I believe in present truth which means that God's continually showing us and continuing growing us and continuing, continually awakening new truths in us 
It's kind of the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist church that we believe in present truth and that God will continue to give us better language, give us better words. That correct thinking, it's going to get better because we are continually going to study. I said, so I'm just confused about settled faith. He didn't, he didn't like it. <laughs> Nobody asked me any questions after that on the panel, which is how I like being on a panel, just so you know. But listen, an unsettled faith is a recognition that there is more that God has for us. And we have to keep searching for it, keep articulating it. The talk and the walk of faith is never done. This is exciting and this is the journey that we've chosen. Doubt also keeps us away from the sin of certainty. Why is certainty a sin? Because when you think that you figured it all out and there's certain beyond a shadow of a doubt and there's no questions that anyone can ask you about anything, you restrict God to what we know rather than allow for the mystery of God that brings us into awe, that changes the way that we worship, that changes the way that we engage people in the life of faith. Now, if you're kind of a logical linear thinker, you're like, okay, well then, you know, we'll get to this point philosophically where you can't know anything. So how can you know anything at all if you allow doubt into your life? I think, I want to say this right. I think that there are some things we can know. And if we go to scripture and look at the totality of scripture, something that is spoken of over 600 times is God's love for us. 1 John 4.18, such love has no fear. Because perfect love casts out, it expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows us that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. Or Ephesians 3.18. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Or how about we go to the Old Testament, Psalm 511. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing joyful praises forever. Spread your protection over them. That all who love your name may be filled with joy. For you bless the godly, O Lord. And you surround them with a shield of love. You don't just surround them with a fog of love. It's a shield of love. It's thick. It's deep. It's strong. 1 John 3, 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Or 1 John 3, 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up His life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well, and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? 
Or how about this? Favorite text in all of scripture. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And Paul says, and I am convinced. Now, Paul's been making this long argument, trying to address people's doubts, trying to say, hey, this is how grace works. This is how love works. This is how righteousness works. He's writing all this stuff. And at the end of it, he goes, listen, forget all that. There's one thing that I know that I'm convinced of. I'm not questioning this one. All the other stuff are working out for you. But this one, I don't need to question anymore. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. And we carry those with us, don't we? Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That shield is strong. Listen, I don't know exactly what heaven's gonna be like. I don't know the processes that God put in place in the world. I haven't figured it all out. I don't know math, I don't know physics. There's lots of things I don't know, but this one thing, this one I know. God loves you so much that he was willing to come and die for you as a human being. And he was willing to go into the grave, not being able to see beyond the grave, but then coming out of the grave victorious over sin and death. You don't have to know it all. Nobody expects you to. You can ask real questions. You can ask real hard questions. You can go, you know what? I'm not sure how that works, but this one, this one you can know. And you can know it not just in your head, you can know it in your heart. You can know that God loves you and you can be sure of the love that he has for you. So as you sing, as you worship, when you open up your heart to God, let those questions be there. We're not saying you don't doubt. We're not saying that you can't even engage those questions, but when you stand up to worship, you open your heart to the love of God and you let that love rush in so that you don't have to question who it is that you're worshiping. You don't don't have to question how much God loves you. In that way, we express love to the world because what we are giving people is an overwhelming experience of the love of God that has filled us up so much that His grace cannot be denied as it comes through us to them. So today, stand up and worship with us as we sing this final song. Stand up and worship for the love of God.